Welcome to Series 3 of the Saltwater Strategist, the podcast that delves into the complex world of maritime security in the Indo-Pacific region. I'm your host, Jen Parker. As the world becomes increasingly dependent on maritime trade, it's critical that we understand the challenges and opportunities in this competitive environment. Our well-respected guests, strategists, academics and international relations and maritime professionals from across the region provide insightful and considered discussion on the most pressing maritime issues in the Indo-Pacific. The Saltwater Strategist is a product of the Australian Naval Institute, a non-profit self-supporting organisation that encourages the promotion and advancement of knowledge related to the maritime profession. This episode of the Saltwater Strategist is also proudly brought to you by the organisers of the Australia ASEAN Summit, occurring in March 24, commemorating 50 years of Australia as a dialogue partner of ASEAN. And what a big couple of weeks it has been in maritime affairs in Australia. We saw the announcements of the outcomes of the independent analysis teams look at the future of the Royal Australian Navy's surface combat fleet. Largely predicted, we saw the future Hunter-class frigate reduced from nine to six. We saw the Arafura offshore patrol vessel reduced from 12 to six. But we also saw the intent to acquire a new general purpose frigate. 11 of those coming, the first three of which were built overseas and the last eight built in Henderson in Western Australia. And we saw the announcement of the intent for Australia to acquire a large optionally crewed surface vessel. So that's joining the US large uncrewed surface vessel program. Six of those to be delivered from the mid-30s to uh, complement the Hobart class and Hunter Destroyers. Concept operations looks like some sort of teaming concept operations to expand the magazine depth of those capabilities. So all in all, that takes us from 11 major surface combatants to 26, if you count the large optionally crewed surface vessels, or 20. Of course, though, we see an increased period of risk for Australia with an immediate reduction in the surface combatant fleet structure. So uh, 11 surface combatants Australia has, three Hobart-class destroyers and eight Anzac-class frigates. The announcement also stated that HMAS Anzac, the first of the Anzac-class frigates, will no longer proceed to sea, and HMAS Aranta, the second of the Anzac-class frigates, will be decommissioned in the next couple of years. So although uh, good news in terms of an expansion of the Royal Australian Navy's surface combatant fleet, something that many reviews have called for over the last 50 years, we will see an immediate reduction from 11 to 9. To unpack all of this, the Australian Naval Institute will be hosting a webinar on Monday the 18th of March, so keep an eye out on the ANI's social media for that to sign up and listen to representatives from academia, industry and capability to talk about the challenge and the opportunities in the announcement about the Service Combatant Fleet Review. Today, we're going to turn our minds to uh, maritime security in Southeast Asia as the second episode of our series of three talking about maritime security and ASEAN nations in commemoration of the 50-year anniversary of Australia as a dialogue partner of ASEAN. Dr. Malik is an assistant professor for international political economy at the university, focusing predominantly on energy and marine fishery policy and governance. 
She's also an associate researcher at the Institute for Development, Economics and Finance, Indonesia, and has published a number of books and writes prolifically for media outlets such as Nikkei, The Diplomat, Jakarta Post, CNN, CNBC, etc. And we're excited to have Dr. Malik join us in Australia next week for the ASEAN Australia Special Summit, Maritime Track. Dr. Malik, thank you for joining us on the Saltwater Strategists. Very much welcome. So we're really looking forward to uh, hosting you in Australia next week at the ASEAN Summit's Maritime Track, where there'll be a huge focus on maritime security issues impacting ASEAN nations. Before we get into these maritime issues, would you mind explaining a little bit for our listeners about ASEAN and the history of ASEAN? Sure. So ASEAN is the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or we know it as ASEAN, it is a political and economic union of 10 member states in Southeast Asia. It consists of Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, Brunei Darussalam, Laos, Myanmar, Cambodia, Philippines, and Vietnam. In 2022, ASEAN agreed in principle to admit East Timor as the group of 11 members of ASEAN. So historically speaking, ASEAN was established on 8th of August in 1967 in Bangkok, Thailand. That time, when the foreign minister of Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, Singapore, and Thailand, they were sat down together in the main hall of the Department of Foreign Affairs building in Bangkok. They together signed the document that is also known as Bangkok Declaration. So the document was signed by the founding fathers of ASEAN, including Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, Singapore, and Thailand. So that is the birth of ASEAN, which later followed by Brunei Darussalam in 1984, Vietnam in 1995, Laos and Myanmar in 1997, Cambodia in 1999, and the last one is East Timor in principle 2022. Thanks, Asmiadi. That's quite a comprehensive history of uh, ASEAN as a political and economic bloc. One of the things that I always find interesting, obviously the Indo-Pacific region is a region full of a vast number of minilaterals and multilaterals. Certainly when it comes to a number of the nations engaged in the Indo-Pacific, whether that be Australia, the US, the UK, one of the terms we always hear at the crux of their discussion of ASEAN is the need for ASEAN centrality. Would you mind talking us through what is meant by ASEAN centrality and why it's important in dealing with security issues in the region? Right. If we see the concept of ASEAN centrality as stated in the ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific, it is broadly emphasized that ASEAN must become the dominant regional platform for addressing common challenges and engaging with external powers. So therefore, it means ASEAN has to be a solid and effective organization that has significant roles in creating stability and peace, particularly in Southeast Asia and also in Asia's context in general. So in order to have strong and solid association, they need to have common goals, not only from elite perspective, but also from the grassroots perspective. It is really important because if you talk about maritime security, we cannot only talk about state actors, but there are many non-state actors who contribute significantly, such as fishermen, fishing industry, 
fishing communities, fishing organization, and of course, NGO and many other players. So I believe ASEAN centrality is not only able to deal with maritime security issue in ASEAN. Thanks, Asmiati. It's a great overview of the concept of ASEAN centrality, obviously articulated in the ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific. And effectively what we're saying is that ASEAN as a regional forum must be at the centre and the driving force of addressing uh, regional issues, and in this context, regional maritime security issues. When we look at ASEAN's central role in addressing regional maritime security issues, what do you see as some of the challenges for ASEAN? Yeah, they're only able to deal with maritime security issues in ASEAN, again, if they have concrete action plans, meaning they know the breakdown of plans and action to address the issue. This is, can be done by involving range of stakeholders in the field because, as far as I know, what they did so far only behave as normative acts. Meaning, we, ASEAN, agree on maritime security issue and the importance of addressing the issue, but we just don't have how we do it together under Asian value. It always refers back to each state's responsibility. That is not our responsibility, that is each state's responsibility. So for sure, intensive communication and discussion with stakeholders urgently needed, as I mentioned before. And again, I want to highlight the commitment should not only play as normative value, but must have concrete action plans designed based on many insights from diverse stakeholders. So I guess what you're saying is that despite a lot of the documentation, a lot of the meeting, a lot of the dialogues within ASEAN to really address maritime security challenges, a lot of that framework isn't really backed up by some of the things that you need to operationalise that, you know, whether that be funding or projects, you know, despite being a key regional body, it tends to default back to state actions to actually address some of these challenges. Now, one of the things that you mentioned earlier is the ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific release by ASEAN in 2019. You know, and following a number of regional organisations, global organisations and countries who have set to really identify a strategy or a plan for how they view and engage with the Indo-Pacific. Obviously, a term that has gained, you know, a lot of traction over the last 10 years. 10 years ago, we would have been talking about the Asia-Pacific. Now we talk about the Indo-Pacific. Why did ASEAN feel the need to release its outlook on the Indo-Pacific and what does it say? Why the document is important? I think uh, because, you know, in Asia, there are so many players. We have China's interest on Southeast Asia. Therefore, ASEAN has to become a strong and solid organization if they want to balancing the power in in the Pacific. AUKUS for sure is the largest power. China is the main player. Together with Russia, together with North Korea, they have strong linkage, political economic relations. If ASEAN cannot fix their internal issue, such as like Myanmar, Rohingya, and other internal issues is going to be a lot of homework for ASEAN. Therefore, I think in maritime perspective, 
there are a lot of homeworks for ASEAN, which just need to be done. So I guess you're saying in some ways ASEAN's release of the outlook on the Indo-Pacific in 2019 was its way of defining its centrality to the region, highlighting the connectiveness of the Pacific and Indian Ocean, but, but also highlighting that Southeast Asia is central to that connectedness and outlining how it sees its role and its cooperation with other organisations in the region. You know, and I note that there were some focuses on areas such as maritime cooperation, connectivity, sustainable development and economics. But you mentioned there that although ASEAN is trying to take a broad look at its role within the Indo-Pacific, it does have a number of internal issues or homework, as you reference, that it really needs to do looking at itself. Would you mind touching a bit more on some of those issues? Only addressing the maritime issue, but also addressing the internal issue. If they cannot focus on that, it would be hard for them to think about Indo-Pacific strategy because they have to dealing with their internal organization first and later think about how they basically balancing the power in Asia's regions. You mentioned some of those internal challenges that ASEAN really does need to grapple with. And obviously you mentioned Myanmar, uh, intensive conflict there since the coup in 21. And, you know, ASEAN tried to lead with the five-point plan in 21 to solve the problem, but there really hasn't been a lot of movement. Myanmar's leaders have been removed from ASEAN meetings, at least for the last couple of years. So it is a, a significant challenge. And turning now to the maritime security challenges, what do you see as the biggest maritime security challenges that ASEAN as a regional forum needs to grapple with? I think the main issue in maritime security in ASEAN nation is IUU fishing. So IUU fishing is the primary issue impacting Asian nations. The question is why IUU fishing? So we know that IUU fishing is illegal, unreported and regulated fishing. We need to know that IUU fishing crimes never stand alone. It's always connected or related to other crimes, such as like uh, human abuse, human trafficking, ecological damage because they're using such as like bomb, sex slavery, human smuggling, animal smuggling, and of course many more. So you're highlighting the point that legal, unregulated, unreported fishing is commonly linked to a wider issue of blue crimes in the region. Would you mind touching on an example of that? What happens in, if we're familiar with the Benjina case in Aru Island, so during that time, in 2015, Indonesia Tax Force team for IUU fishing found 322 foreign fishing crews as victims of human abuse slavery in Aru Island, Indonesia. So the ship is owned by a Thailand company where 256 fishing crew from Cambodia and 58 from Myanmar. So they were forced to work more than 20 to 24 hours per day non-stop and they were sexually abused. In doing their actions, the ships, the Thailand company, use double flag. When they enter Indonesian water, they use Indonesian flag. When they enter Thai water, they use Thai flag. So they change their flag. 
All their activities were illegal. They catch fish in protected area. If you see in Papua, Papua sea water, majority were protected area. They catch endangered animals. And also they use illegal fishing tools, such as like trolls. So if we see this case, it's nearly impossible basically to measure how much is socioeconomic loss. We cannot measure human suffering. You're right. That's one of the significant challenges that is often grappled with of how do you highlight the significant impact of illegal, unregulated fishing when you when you can't really quantify human suffering. But is there a figure that uh, generally Southeast Asian nations put on the cost of IU fishing in the region? Six billion economic losses in 2019 from IU fishing. So I think yeah, IU fishing is the biggest enemy for Asian countries. As you highlight, when you look at maritime security in Southeast Asia or when ASEAN looks at Southeast Asia, uh, given how dependent Southeast Asian nations are on the blue economy, illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing uh, is proving to be a significant challenge in the region. Of course, there are a number of maritime security challenges that impact the region, whether it be IUU, whether it be transnational crimes, as you've touched on, you know, drug smuggling, human smuggling, etc. You know, we also have issues to do with uh, boundary delimitations, which uh, I will touch on next week with our guest from the the Philippines. So there are a lot of challenges, you know, and, and not to mention, obviously, the impact of competition in the region, the potential for uh, something to go wrong between ships or aircraft. And to deal with these challenges, I know last year ASEAN released its uh, maritime outlook. Now, I know your commentary before on the outlook on the Indo-Pacific, that it's a normative document, but it's not really been operationalised with project plans or the funding. What are your thoughts on the ASEAN maritime outlook that was released in 2023? Do you think that this is a good document that might uh, enhance how ASEAN countries work together to address uh, some of these maritime security issues that we've highlighted during this podcast? Yeah, in normative perspective, yes, I think it's a good starting point. But I'm skeptical because I have two reasons why. The first one, in ASEAN, they prioritize harmony. So what happens in ASEAN is if we see the data in based on Indonesian data, yeah, Majority of fishing vessels come from Vietnam. And there are many diplomatic talks between Indonesia and Vietnam to tackling the issue. But what happens in the fields, there are still large number of illegal fishing vessels from Vietnam entering Indonesian water. So in elite level, in diplomatic levels, they agree that this is an issue that we have to tackle. But in the field, it's a different issue. Why? Because ASEAN doesn't have any budget allocation doesn't have any concrete plan in how basically they are going to pursue that maritime security. So I think for me, it's just like level of normative. The outlook is good. The blueprint is good. But what's after that? That's going to be like, I think, the biggest questions. So in some ways, I guess you're saying that this focus on harmony or, you know, the well-established ASEAN principles of non-interference or consensus-based decision-making often impact the practical ability to address these issues as a multilateral forum as opposed to on a a bilateral or a state-based approach. 
And I guess for those reasons, it's quite difficult to operationalise, you know, noting the challenges you've just highlighted in terms yeah. of funding, uh, et cetera. And just touching back on your point about, you know, the harmony or the non-interference approach of ASEAN being a challenge, you know, one of the key criticisms of ASEAN in dealing with maritime security include its limited response to the 2016 arbitral tribunal on uh, the Philippines EZ and some of the low-lying features there and specifically China's refusal to accept or comply with the tribunal rulings, as we've seen quite prominently in 2023. Certainly externally, that harmony, which is a benefit in many ways, is also seen as a challenge in dealing with it. And the boundary delimitations is probably the primary example that comes to mind. I think for me, there is no fine line of actions, no final programs. For me, it's all only elite talks. Again, I want to emphasize that ASEAN prioritize the ASEAN harmony, meaning it's highly unlikely they will use power pressure. So it depends on you. If you want to do it, go ahead. If you don't want to, there's nothing much we can do. We can talks. And again, what happens after that? Talks and talks. So I think they need to have commitment like, let's sit together. This is how much budgeting I have because, for instance, like Indonesia have large uh, water territory. They should have more like giving more budget, right? Compared to any other Southeast Asian countries. With that budgeting, they design the programs and the programs can be implemented together. So that way is technically can be done in the field. Otherwise, we just like talking in the clouds. Nothing's going to happen. Those are great points, and I think things that we'll see teased up further at next week's ASEAN plus Australia Maritime Security Summit, you know, how do you bring the nations together and also the, the dialogue partners such as Australia that can assist to really operationalise some of their aspirations regarding maritime security challenges. And there are some very good examples in the region. You know, I look at the trilateral security patrols between Singapore, Indonesia and Malaysia in the Strait of Malacca. You know, that is a great example of how ASEAN nations have worked together to reduce the threat of armed robbery or piracy in the region. I would recommend to our listeners to look up some of the things that you've written about the IUU challenges in Southeast Asia. And moving away from IUU fishing a little bit, I just want to touch on Indonesia's approach to maritime security issues. I'm very lucky in my career that I've had uh, lots of opportunity to work with Indonesia on planning uh, naval exercises or cooperative patrols. You know, in Australia and Indonesia have quite a, a close maritime relationship, which, you know, makes sense given our geography. Would you talk a little bit about Indonesia's approach to maritime security issues? Right. I think under President Jokowi administrations, Indonesia has introduced vision of Indonesia as global maritime nexus. I, I believe you are familiar with that, which is basically emphasizing the role of maritime sector. Here, the highlight of the issue so in Indonesia, there are 18 to 19 state actors, including ministry and other state organization, which is basically involving in maritime security. So there are so many state actors. There are so many ministries. What happens, they often have different roles and also like they have overlapping duties, tasks within each other. So each ministry has different plans which has to be coordinated with other ministries. So what happens in Indonesia, we basically understand what we should do in tackling maritime security. 
But the issue is there are so many organizations, there are so many ministries, there are so many actors basically involving to tackling the issue. So sometimes it's not effective on the field. We have uh, Bakamla, if you are familiar, so basically the Maritime Security Agency. But again, Bakamla is designed to basically to protect the maritime, it's a coast guard, Indonesian coast guard. But again, Bakamla have an uh, issue on budgeting. I think the main issue is here because there are 18 to 19 state actors, including ministry and agency. Each ministry and agency has own budgeting, so there is no concentrated budgeting in tackling the issue. So we can have like a good vision, we have to tackle the issue, but the question is how we go into tackling the issue if there are so many programs. So in order to achieve the goal, it's going to be really hard, right? So let me give it you the breakdown of Bakamla. So Bakamla's budget only able to support 14.28% of total operational needs. So only 14% and for sea patrols, only 28.9% of total needs. So basically it's far away from the total budget is needed. In 2024, the budget allocation only 771 billion rupiah, which is basically far away from ideal budgeting. Their ideal budgeting is around 5,900 trillion rupiah. So I think therefore it needs really strong collaboration and just assign like one organization or two organizations dealing with the maritime security issue. So therefore we can more effectively implement in the program in the field. I think that's the main issue. We know that basically this is important, but again, we have to deal with that. And it's an issue that impacts Indonesia, obviously, but the multiple departments that deal with maritime-related issues is something that is a topic of conversation globally. You know, I was no. recently in the Western Indian Ocean at a conference talking about maritime security, and there's an increasing trend over there to talk about whether it's appropriate to generate a minister for the blue economy to try and bring these agencies together under one minister to try and work through these challenges that impact maritime security. In Australia, I can't list the number of departments off the top of my head. I should be able to. But there is a significant number of departments that deal with maritime security, so much so that we actually have a guide on how they all are meant to work together. So it is a challenge. And obviously, the under-resourcing is something that, again, nations are increasingly talking about. You know, and I think that one of the benefits of the current era is at least there is the recognition of how much the blue economy does impact the economies of coastal states. Asmiadi, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the Saltwater Strategist today. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for, but it's been a, a fascinating discussion of the history of ASEAN, the challenges ASEAN faces, its maritime security challenges and others. And especially, you know, given your expertise, the deep dive into the impacts of illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing in the region. Uh, well, we am keen to uh, get you back on the podcast and I'd love to uh, delve into Indonesia's naval modernization potentially as a future topic so uh, thank you so much yeah thank you
Our guest today was Dr. Asmiadi Malik from the Bakker University of Indonesia. I thank you for joining us on another episode of the Saltwater Strategists. We will have a third of our series of three episodes released in about two weeks where we'll interview Dr. Charmaine Willoughby. Charmaine is a non-resident scholar at Carnegie China and focuses on maritime security issues. And we'll be getting into some of the challenges from a Philippines perspective in the region. Now, as I mentioned at the start of the episode, the Australian Naval Institute has been deeply involved in analysing and promoting understanding of the recent decision of the Aryan Service Combatant Fleet Review. And we will be hosting a webinar on the 18th of March. So keep an eye out for the ANI social media so you can sign up to that to hear representatives from uh, industry, academia and shipbuilding talk about the future plans for the Aryan Service Combatant the opportunities, but also uh, a number of the challenges that we're facing. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating, reviewing and following the Saltwater Strategist wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more on the Australian Naval Institute website, navalinstitute.com.au, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or sign up to our weekly newsletter via our website. If you're interested in general maritime affairs, why not consider joining the Australian Naval Institute to get special access to timely content and events relating to maritime affairs. A big thank you to our episode sponsor, the organisers of the Australia ASEAN Summit, which is occurring in March 24 and commemorating 50 years of Australia as a dialogue partner of ASEAN. The support of our sponsors is vital to bring you these timely and important discussions on maritime security. I'm Jen Parker. Thanks for listening. <music>